All right. I um, just a, a just a quick few things to our introduction. I was thinking about uh, my legacy here at Grace Church, and I realized it's every one of these panels on the wall. I hung every on virtually every one of these panels, these soundproof panels. So every time I come in, I go, yeah, something to remember. What I want to do this morning is, uh, by the way, uh, just a, a, pl a preliminary comment, and that is uh, a comprehension of grace. When that came to me, it was here at Grace Church, and, uh, and it was absolutely life-changing. I've explained it to many that it's like, it's like revival that never quits when you get a, comprehens a comprehension of, of Christ's full and complete work and the acceptance that we have uh, in Christ and what he's performed and what he is and who he is in us, uh, it's been, it's been life-changing. And uh, has it been for you? I'm assuming so, the, the message itself, the teaching. Well, what I would like to do is, um, is work through uh, just uh, a few things uh, on the, I want to read about the first six or seven uh, slides um, and, and not speak much to them other than just mention them to you. So let's go ahead and put the first one up there. These are some comments I want, I want us to pay attention to, and then I'll kind of uh, unpack it just a little bit. Number one, modern Western Christianity is losing its influence on culture and society. Anybody here argue with me about that? Number two, the church by and large doesn't know who she is. She doesn't comprehend the saving, abundant grace the Father's lavished upon her. Number three, if the church, if she only knew how much she was loved, accepted, and spiritually transformed in Christ, she would readily embrace life and ministry and would have far greater transformational impact in the world. Amen? Number four, confused identity results in troubled intimacy with God. Confused identity results in troubled intimacy with God. Number five, the church that has been taught that intimacy with the Father, uh, the church has typically been taught that um, that intimacy with the Father is a performance-based skill. That's the reason why she's having trouble with intimacy. She's trying to achieve it. She's trying to earn it. And... Uh, well, let me move on. I told I said I wouldn't speak too much of these. Number six, troubled intimacy is not primarily due to poor behavior that results in an offended, disappointed Heavenly Father. But number seven, it's primarily due to poor believing and poor receiving. Listen, behavior follows belief. So what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about God determines our behavior by and large. And so if, our, if we're looking at behavior first, then we're judging ourselves and we're judging our relationship with God based upon that behavior. And if the behavior doesn't match up, if it doesn't match up to what we believe God's acceptance or his righteousness will be, then we automatically assume that he's bothered by that and therefore he's cross-armed, cross-eyed, and bothered with you and distant. But that's faulty belief. That's faulty theology. It's not true. It's not true at all. But unless you have a comprehension of grace, your tendency is to move in that direction, to a performance-based relationship. All right, now, let's just leave it at that for a moment. Don't put the number eight up. Let's, uh, let me move forward. 
I'm convinced, one of the, we have five initiatives with Missionary Ventures that uh, was started about 35 years ago. The initiatives we, we call, they're not programs, they're, they're uh, explanations of what we have seen and are seeing God do in the mission world. And um, so these are some things that we, we have seen us become uh, effective in. And one of those is discipleship. We're absolutely convinced that if we can identify men and women of God in, in cultures that we're called to go as missionaries, identify them and empower them and equip them to do the work of ministry that God's called them to, then we have really served the mission field well. And that requires discipleship. Uh, many, many of the people that we uh, are called to uh, are auditory learners. They, either the Bible is not in their language or they just simply have not been taught to read. And so they, they are comprehensive, uh, they comprehend Bible stories that they've been taught in the past, but, but theological doctrine and, and, and how to teach and train others is something that they're lacking in significantly. It's not that their heart isn't right or that their passion isn't there, it's that they, don't, they just don't know, they haven't been taught. And so discipleship's a big deal. And so I believe it's a big deal in the church, and I think that's what the church, when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about the church as we know it, especially in Western cultures, one I'm most familiar with. That, that's what we're lacking in. We're not very good at discipling each other. We're good at a Sunday morning event, by and large, where people could come on Sunday morning and, you know, you have the skilled worship, you have hopefully skilled teaching and preaching and so forth, and then everybody goes their way, and then they come back at, on another Sunday. But, but how, how deep has, has that experience taken the, the average church member in terms of maturing in Christ? Well, I think we look at the conduct, and that tells us. The conduct of the average Christian in our world as we know and understand it is lacking in terms of its, of its, uh, of, of their transformational uh, uh, transaction they've experienced with Christ. They simply don't know who they are. We need to disciple our people. I believe that's something that Grace Church has been doing and why we focus so much on grace teaching. We, we, we believe that there's no way to maturity apart from comprehending God's abundant grace. You can't grow up. You're constantly looking, if, you're, if you don't understand grace, you're looking at a performance-based relationship, and you're always trying to develop that or, or perfect it, and it seems like the only ones who can do that are the so-called experts. Until you start reading their own personal biographies, uh, autobiographies, you realize they're not perfect at all. If, if they're candid and open, they'll reveal that from the platform. And so uh, there's, a, there's a, a significant challenge for the church today to really develop in the area of discipleship. In Ephesians chapter 4, I don't have a slide for that, uh, at 11 and 13, as Jesus was ascending, he gave gifts to the church. We call them the fivefold ministries. We, these are the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Is that me doing that? Hang on. No? Okay. Um, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints, the body of Christ, to building up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so the, the design of the church in terms of Christ's gifting as, he's, as he sins and through the, uh, the outpouring of his spirit is that we grow up, that we mature, that we function well. No wonder culture doesn't take the church uh, with much seriousness because all they see are the banners on the side of the street and everybody's beckoning somebody to come into the church service. What about the church going back into the world and, and revealing and conveying the power 
of, of the gospel through their lives, the way they demonstrate, the way they conduct the affairs of their lives, the way they speak, the way they go about business decisions. Um, you know, what's, what's happened there? You know, and we're, we're being buffaloed and intimidated by culture. I believe that that's primarily caused by a, a confusion of identity. We don't understand intimacy with God and how it's achieved. We don't understand grace. Again, when I'm saying we, I'm talking about the church at large. So with that said, the bride assumes that she's routinely failing. She's failing God's expectations. So she comes, becomes preoccupied. And uh, if, if you're like me, if you're unsure about a relationship, especially a relationship with God, if you're unsure, your tendency is to look in the mirror and say, okay, I see the cause of that. I, I see, I see what, how I behaved on my ride to work on I-4. I, 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 I'm quickly reminded when I don't comprehend grace, I'm quickly reminded of my failings. I, that's what I see. I see my flesh. I see, you know, I see, I, I see my lack of conduct, my lack of maturity. That's what I see. And so if, I, if I'm transporting that, what I see in the mirror to my perspective of what it means in relationship with God, it's going to seem distant. And I'm going to assume that God's not happy either. And so uh, that, that's routinely what's going on. And, but I, I, believe, I believe there is a place, most preach uh, every Sunday to, uh, to repent and to come to the altar. Now, there's a place for that. There's a place for repentance. There's even a place for grieving. Uh, but, but the cycle can be so repetitive that uh, every Sunday people will come to the altar, they'll repent, they'll grieve over their sin, and they'll have some sense of relief since they've done that. Because they'll experience, to some degree, the forgiveness of God. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But, but then they'll, that Monday comes and it starts all over again. And, and then they, they can't wait till Sunday to get it all right again. So the cycle is horrible. If that's what we perceive as maturity, which, which is just repenting and grieving over our conduct. Well, like, again, our conduct and our decision making can be quite harmful to people. There is a place to repent, and there is a place to grieve when people are hurt, when people are bothered, when family is disrupted by the way we think, the way we make decisions, the way we talk, and the way we perform. There is a place for all of that. But none of that impacts the father to the place where he says, well, okay, you are going to have to get that right and if we're ever going to have another conversation. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to perform better if you and I are going to talk and come to a place of agreement. And so our, our thinking through that is, well, I better repent more. I better grieve more. I better really, really, really feel sorry about all of that. Well, there is a place for that. But that does not generate intimacy with God. Believing and receiving Christ's complete and finished work on our behalf that is covered and dealt with all sin is the place where intimacy is developed and, and, and sensed and grown in. For that reason, slide number eight, I want to say that grace is intentional. It's intentional. It actually predates the fall of man. Grace is intentional. That means it's not accidental. It's not incidental. It's not impulsive. And it's not impromptu. I love the scripture there in uh, Revelation 13, 8, which is the next slide. I've chosen to use the New King James Version here to help you see what, why intentionality is such a, a major factor when it comes to our comprehension of grace. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's a little h because 
He's talking about the world, the Antichrist, the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Now, there's some commentary, uh, comments about this, saying, okay, now which, which is slain from the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world does it belong to? Does it belong to the book of the Lamb or does it belong to the, to the, to the Lamb that was slain? Well, think about that for a moment. It can't belong to the book of the Lamb alone because the book of the Lamb, which is the book of, of those who are saved, wouldn't even exist had the Lamb not been slain. So both the book and the Lamb were performed and declared before the foundations of the world were laid. This is what this means. That means before God spoke the, the Big Bang into, into place and creation uh, explodes into all directions that past the speed of light and we begin to see the, the unfolding of all, all, all of that in the six days of creative act and then the crowning aspect of God's creation which is man, God creates man and then we know later in the fall that man makes a, a, a decision against God's direction, against his command, against his offer uh, uh, where life can be found. They chose the tree of life, I mean they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life. We know all that story. The fall of man, sin enters the world. Before all of that happened, before the word was spoken, let there be light, and there was light, before that happened, God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus had determined what, what, would, take, what would be necessary, what would take place for God's master plan to be, to be fulfilled. Redemption was determined before it all began. It wasn't a reaction to man's sin. It was predetermined. God's grace is intentional before the foundations of the world. How miraculous and glorious is that? That changes the way I see things. It changes, changes the way I see the Father. The reason why the Father did that is because he wanted to be known as Father. I love what my, my, my wife's cousin Andy, a good friend of Clark's and others, uh, out there in Sarah, Oklahoma, pastors out there, and he, he said this. He says, God is what he is. Father is who he is. God is what he is, but Father is who he is. God wants to reveal himself as Father. His glorious intention from the very beginning was to have many sons and daughters who carry within their bosom the DNA of God. So it's not a relationship alone. It's oneness that he was after. Remember the prayer of Jesus there in the garden. Father, I pray they'd be one just as you and I are one. Do you think the Father says, no, I'm not going to answer that prayer of Jesus. Sorry. I'll answer everything else, but I'm not going to answer that one. Well, of course he answered that. And he answered it through the fulfillment of and, and the completion of the new covenant. Oneness is what God has achieved when we by faith come into relationship with God. Well, that's a good place for an amen. I, you're going to have to help me out here just a little bit. All right, slide number 10. I'd rather do that. Okay. Okay. Slide number 10. Uh, talking about God's ultimate intention for mankind. I think I would just kind of talk through that, so I really won't spend a whole much, much more time on that. What I will say is that the, while the gospel clarifies and establishes Christian identity, uh, a Christian's value and purpose, that's what the gospel does. It's the excellence in biblical discipleship that unlocks the opportunities, the purpose, the destiny of what it means to be in Christ and he in us. So we've really got to be about that. I really encourage you, Grace Church, to really focus in on attending and cooperating with and maybe even joining in on various discipleship-based 
classes. So we're, we're growing up. We're intentional about growing up in the, in the fullness of Christ. Uh, what's happening in the world today is something that you see and I see. I'm, I'm really quite alarmed um, with what I see in America, bothered by it an awful lot. Um, I find myself just trying not to pay much attention. I get bothered. Um, I don't want to be bothered. I see what I see, and I, I kind of have some idea what's going on as I see the, uh, the, the leadership and the culture and everything just slipping away, and it just, uh, I'm bothered a lot. But if, if I could just get God's vantage point, I realize he's not bothered, bothered at all. He's not worried. He's got this thing. You know, his purpose and his plan was, was determined before all of this has played itself out. He's not surprised at all by this. And Jesus is still the answer. And the church is still the bride. And she's still the one that carries within her bosom the very DNA of God, which includes authority and power and designated titles such as sons and daughters, such as ambassadorship, such as, you know, friends of God and so forth. Wow, we, we're in a good position to affect change. We're just not doing it very well right now. But I think that's going to change, by the way, because I do believe that there is this tsunami, as, as I know Pastor Clark has talked about, this tsunami that's, that's coming from a distance. And if you look way, way off through a spiritual eye, you can see something's building way out there in the ocean. It's building and it's building and it's building and it's building. It's this, it's this massive awareness that the Father is, is bringing again to, to life and culture and to the church about what about his pride and his joy of the finished work of Christ, what his son has accomplished. And he is not at all accepting the fact that the church is immature as she is. So the tsunami of revelation is coming. It's coming. And when, we, when we're washed over by this glorious, transformative realization of what Christ has accomplished and how prideful the father is of his beloved son, we, you're just not going to be the same. You can't be. You don't want to be. And culture doesn't stand as an insurmountable obstacle. It becomes an opportunity for us to affect change. How we do that is, is a whole other subject, but I'll let the experts talk more about that. So the shockwaves are being felt here. And the shockwaves are caused by defiled thinking, man-made agendas, secularization, which is dead set on, on stamping out any kind of Christian influence, certainly reducing it to a mere theory in the minds of men and women, and, uh, and, and removing from the foundations of, of America, per se, specifically, uh, that Christianity had anything to do with it. And uh, so rewriting history, rewriting all kinds of things so that culture is not driven by a Judeo-Christian perspective. That's what secularization is, and it's running rampant, right? You see it. I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. You see it. It's there. It's happening all over the place. Now, I heard crickets. Does that mean I'm, somebody's falling asleep? <laughs> I, I, have, I have instructed others to listen. Make, make, when you're speaking, make sure and keep it short because just recognize you're far more interested in the subject matter you're speaking on than anybody else is. So uh, perhaps the crickets was a reminder to keep it short. All right, so the shockwaves are there. God is shaking this 
this, what I would call a false center, a false center of, of observation or opinion of reality. God's shaking that. And you'll see that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26. I don't think I have a slide for that, so I'll just read it to you. It says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, saying, yet, yet once more will I shake heaven and earth, so that that which remains is that which cannot be shaken. There is a lot of shaking going on. And it needs to be. And it's redemptive, by the way. Is redemptive in purpose. And so God is just shaking things all over the place. He's shaking it for the body of Christ so she'll recognize that what she's been depending upon is, is something she needs to turn away from. She doesn't have to be accepted by culture to have influence. She doesn't have to be. In fact, she probably won't. All right. I want to read a, a quote from Deverne Frumke. This is a slide, begin slide number 11, and then there's several slides, I think, there. Deverne Frumke was, uh, wrote a book called Ultimate Intention. Ultimate Intention. It was written in 1962. I think the, when I first got a copy of it, it was, I was attending seminary, and I was probably 1979 uh, or 80, maybe 81. And I began to read it, didn't comprehend much of it, underlined a few things, set it on the shelf. About 10 years later, picked it up and read a little bit more. About 10 years later, picked it up and read a little bit more. And it seemed like it took me 30 years to come to a place. I think it really was the grace revelation that brought me to a place to really be able to comprehend some of the things that Deverne was, was speaking to. Let me just read a quote from him. Since the fall, blinded man has ever continued to make himself central. Even from the religious realm, concepts and resulting methods become twisted until it often seems the church is presenting a God whose entire working is for man, for his benefit, for his welfare, for his blessing and bliss. Until man has had a major rectification, he will, even as a believer, be the very center of his own very small universe, seeking to make everything serve himself. The church has had significant difficulty through the centuries in blossoming into the full maturity which God intended, which Paul describes in Ephesians 4. That's where I talked about those, the fivefold ministries for the purpose of equipping the body. Deverne goes on and says, this is not impossible. Full maturity is not impossible. It is God's purpose, God's intention for his people. The hour is coming upon us when he is doing a very special thing. It should be no cause for surprise. If the truth he is now unveiling causes a violent reaction, his body must grow to maturity. The old wineskins cannot possibly contain what God is now preparing and doing. Very prophetic and very now, in my opinion, what he had to say there. So the gospel of grace rightfully chooses to view God and his redemptive plan through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We don't have to guess what God is like or how he deals with people or even what his plan is for us. Jesus has shown us. If you have any doubt, any question about the Father, look to Jesus. There is no difference. John 14, 7, if you had known me, Jesus says, you would know the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So how you view yourself, how you view the world, how you view your destiny is a direct result of how you view God, for better or for worse. And if you have questions or doubts about anything, look to Jesus. Look to him. What I mean, what I mean by that is view not only what he has to say, but how he conducted the affairs of his life. Look to him. 
And the Holy Spirit is constantly unveiling the reality of Christ so you can see him and with eyes that others can't see. Not sure about your future? Look to Jesus and see what his future is. Because you're in Christ and he's in you. Not sure about your security? How secure is Jesus with the Father? That'll give you an indication how secure you are. Any question about your righteousness or your sanctification? Well, look to Jesus. How righteous is he? How sanctified is he? So are you in Christ. He has performed it. It's not your performance. It was his. Now we have the opportunity to live from that foundation of reality to exhibit that which is already true. Boy, you need to record that and repeat that. That was really, really good right there. John, 1 John 4, 17 says, As he is, so are you in this world. Boy, that is, that's not a challenging statement as much as it is uh, just a closing your eyes with a smile says, Lord, that is amazing. That is amazing what you say about me, that as you are, so am I. Well, Lord, I, I'm not living to that full potential. I'm not living in that reality. And I don't feel a sense of condemnation when I admit that. I have a sense of adventure before me. Boy, I have places to grow up in. I have things I need to see, things I need to do. I have people I can talk to. I have things I can grow in. That's what that is. As he is, so are you in this world. This isn't something you hope to achieve as a status of religious maturity. It's something you receive. It's a reality you receive by faith. I've talked about intimacy and why it's troubled by wrongdoing and wrong thinking, but it's primarily caused by poor belief and not receiving by faith what Christ has done and what he's accomplished for us. I love the fact that he promises that in the midst of my weakness, and when I look in the mirror, I see weakness. My wife sees it more than I, but there's weakness there. It's obvious. It's evident. But, but But Jesus doesn't see me in that capacity. He sees me for what he's performed. He sees what is true about me eternally. So that's what new covenant reality is. And so if I can get his viewpoint on me, I'll behave differently. I will. If, if I am a, an ambassador, and I am, then um, I'll, I'll start acting like one. If I am a son and daughter, and I'm a son whose DNA resides within me that has made me righteous, that has made me pure, that has made me holy, that has made me sanctified, that has justified me, if all of that is true about me, and it is, I have an opportunity to live within that reality. If I don't know about that, then I, I'll, I'll resort to trying to achieve and have my own self-righteousness. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 says. So that which has stood in the way of union between the believer and God has been removed forever. That's good news. The fact is that we're new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Old things being everything that has kept me in uh, uh, 
that's locked me up, kept me in, in poor performance, kept me in walking in a lack of destiny. All of that was crucified with Christ. The old man, dead. The new man, fully alive. And the new man is all that God has performed in Christ. Right? I am a new man in Christ. Old things passed away. All things are new. So, next time you look in the mirror, start looking and stating to yourself what Christ says about you. And I like the uh, Lauren Daigle. We went to her concert not terribly long ago here in Orlando. And she has a song about that. You know, what you say of me. You know, I'm, I'm feeling weak, but you say I'm strong. And, you know, and, and declaring these glorious truths that really only a grace per second and an encounter, genuine encounter with Jesus can provide. And amazing how that changed the way we think and the way we act. Okay, nearly at the end. Maybe I can finish before I hear another cricket. That would be good. <laughs> I put up the uh, slide number 12, if you would. Uh, that's the one about the, uh, uh, the John 15 passage. There we are. This, this kind of ties this whole thing together, the intentionality of God regarding grace. Uh, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm going to illustrate that in just a few moments. But think about this just a moment, what it means to be a branch. I don't, I don't believe there's ever been an occasion that science has proven that a branch has to really work hard at bearing fruit. It either it does or it doesn't. If it's healthy, it does. And how is a branch healthy? It's identified and reliant upon the vine. All of life comes from the vine and to the branch. The branch just clings, just abides, lives in the vitality and the reality of what the vine provides, right? Church life, Christian life, branch life is far more simple and far more glorious and, and far more impacting than most have been led to believe because they're concentrating on striving to be a branch, striving to bear fruit, striving, 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 and just constantly looking at themselves and, and a branch comparing himself to another branch and a branch comparing to this branch and that branch. And we're all comparing ourselves to the branch when we need to be looking to the vine. Now, I want to give you some illustration here. When Tammy and I were in Botswana, we did a full week of touring in Botswana by motorcycle. And uh, we stopped at a place called Planet Baobab. And this place is filled with these baobab trees. And uh, another term for that that's comical here is the upside-down tree because the branches look more like roots. Wouldn't you say? You, these trees are also used during Halloween time. This is a good time to be talking about the baobab tree. The baobab tree is also the place where you get, it, it, by its pods, you get cream of tartar. It's a very, very neat tree. All right, go to the next slide. Just wanted, this is where we were staying and uh, we camped out and these beautiful trees were there. Go to the next one. Isn't that beautiful? A very, very interesting tree. Now, remember, keep it on, keep it on this slide for the time being. Remember what I said, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Is there anything really spectacular about the branches on the baobab tree? Not really, right? L let me show you what the vine looks like. Go to the next slide. That's the baobab tree. 
you can see half a dozen of us standing at the base of the vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, the trunk. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Abide in me as I abide in you. And as you do that, you're going to bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. All the emphasis needs to be on the vine. All of our comprehension, all of our perspective needs to be upon him. If you have any questions, any doubts, look to Jesus. And hopefully you'll always remember the baobab tree is an illustration of vine versus branch. It's preposterous to compare yourself with another branch. Pour your attention on the vine and just abide. Amen? That's a very, very good thing. Stand up with me. Let's, let's pray together. And then I believe Pastor Clark, you're coming up. Every head bowed, every eye closed. A reminder that abiding is believing. And Jesus is the source of life. He is life itself and his life dwells within the believer. And there is no intimacy apart from belief and receiving. So walk in it and you'll bear much fruit and you'll transform the world around you by the fact of being a healthy branch attached to the vine. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning, those who are listening on live stream, that has been any question whatsoever about the security of salvation, that they look to you. If there's never been a decision to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, Father, then I pray that right now, by faith, each and every one that has a doubt will say, Jesus, I know you are the Son of God. You gave yourself for me. You became sin on my behalf. You became that perfect sacrifice. You did what I could not do. So by faith now, I trust in you. I recognize my sin, and I come to you for deliverance and freedom and forgiveness for that. Come into my heart and be my Lord and my Savior. And I pray that if you prayed that prayer for the first time or second or third time and just never really comprehended it, that now you'll walk in the reality of what it means to be in Christ. His promise is... Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, transformed, become a new creation. That's the miracle of what Jesus can do. And for those of us who've been saved and been saved for a long time, Lord, I pray for that tsunami to, to rush over us, rush over us, transform our thinking, cause us to think differently about you and about ourselves and about others around us so that we can engage culture in a manner in which it can be transformed again. People can see and comprehend Jesus through our lives, not just our message. Bless this precious family of ours. Lord, bless them, encourage them, bless this church, bless the grace message, grace the, bless the teaching and bless the finances. Bless all that we're about, Lord, so we can extend into the world the best news that could ever be conveyed, that Jesus is alive and well. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.